Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. If this is your first time, we give a special welcome to you and say thanks for checking us out. And if this is your spiritual home, we say welcome to you and say thanks for spending some time with us today for our online gathering. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and then Saturday night we gathered for some time of hanging of the greens. And so as we lean into this season of Advent, we're just so grateful that you can be here. I want to remind you that we're doing a compassion giving tree during the season of Advent, where we're inviting you to be a participant in helping us bless those that are around the world through, through the Ministry of Compassion International. You'll find a link here in the worship notes. I want to remind you that Tuesday is Giving Tuesday. We've just survived Black Friday and tomorrow is Cyber Monday. But on Tuesday is when nonprofits lean into raising the banner of their mission in their communities. And we're part of that. And so if you'd like to share in helping us leverage connection to our community this year, we're targeting our partnership with Love in the Name of Christ, our Pots and Pans Ministries. We shared a couple weeks ago about how the, the person from the pizza shop was blessed by our faithfulness and offering her at a point in her life and uh, pots and pans to help get her kitchen set up and then how just recently her daughter was working through some difficulties and so she was able to bless her. But your gift will allow us to uh, leverage uh, buying gently used and new pots and pans and kitchenware that we can share with our community. And know that on Giving Tuesday through Richland Gives, there's an opportunity for us to get a matching grant through uh, some competition. Uh, it's a healthy thing, and so at 3 o'clock, we invite you to jump online and uh, make your gift during that time between 3 and 4. But we just hope you'll be part of that as we uh, do good together uh, to impact our community. Like sheep that wander too far from the shepherd, we also lose our way. And once ensnared by the thicket, all we long for is our release. What did God pay for this ransom? He sent us his son. The call of Christmas is more than just the story of Jesus' arrival. We're going to look at the stories of Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. And we're going to see that each of them were given a call. A call to prepare, a call to provide, a call to protect, and a call to praise. It's my desire over these next few weeks to give just a different perspective from those who lived through the story of that first Christmas. And for us as we prepare our own hearts for Jesus coming again as the Christ child. When Zechariah, the aging priest, went to work that day, I don't think he expected he'd encounter an angel. He had been a priest for decades, and he served faithfully in his priestly responsibility for as long as he could remember. And I want us to see that God regularly works through ordinary people doing what they normally do in their lives. Although Zechariah was in the midst of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to offer incense inside the temple, angelic encounters are not as unique as we might expect. If we would look through the first few chapters of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, all the way to the final descriptions in the book of Revelation, and then every page in between, there are literally hundreds of references 
where the activities of angels are recorded. I did a recent Google search of just the word angel encounters, and it produced some 44 million results. It was crazy. Uh, historical reviews of virtually all nations and cultures. When we look through the history of nations and cultures, we find many stories about the belief in angels and angelic beings. Even the ancient Egyptians constructed their tombs with ornate and extravagant furnishings because of their beliefs that angels would visit the place where the dead resided in the ages to come. Early religions, apart from any connection from the pages of the Bible, taught about the existence of angels. Later religions that developed apart from Christianity, such as Islam, speak to the subject of angels. Some Islamic scholars suggest each person on earth has assigned at least two angels that are tasked to record the good and the bad deeds of a person's life. Angels are prominent in art throughout the ages, and they are a subject often in films and television scripts today. Volumes of stories every year are shared by people concerning angels that have been active in daily uh, situations. You wonder, is there any validity to these kinds of stories, these kind of claims? Perhaps there is angelic activity in some of these stories, if not all of these instances. And as we consider the subject of angels, let's remember what the writer of Hebrews there in the New Testament tells us. He states, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. So in other words, you may have been visited by an angel and you didn't even know it. So be nice and hospitable to all, and take the advice we sing at Christmas time. So be good for goodness sake. Now, speaking of Christmas songs, it wouldn't be Christmas without singing songs that speak of angels and their activities, such as Hark the Herald Angel Sings, or Angels We Have Heard on High, or Angels from the Realms of Glory. Those are just to name a few. In Billy Graham's book, Angels, God's Secret Agents, he says, I believe in, in angels because the Bible says there are angels, and I believe the Bible to be the true word of God. He goes on to say, the Bible testifies that God has provided assistance for us in our spiritual conflicts. We are not alone in this world. The Bible teaches us that God's Holy Spirit has been given to empower us and guide us. Also, the Bible, in nearly 300 different places, also teaches that God has countless angels at his command. Billy goes on to say, furthermore, God has commissioned these angels to aid his children in their struggles against Satan. If the activities of the devil and his demons seem to be intensifying in these days, as I believe they are, should not the incredible greater supernatural powers of God's holy angels be even more indelibly impressed on the minds of the people of faith? After all, references to the holy angels in the Bible far outnumber references to Satan and his subordinate demon. If you are a believer, expect mighty angels to accompany you in your life experiences. I also believe in angels because I have sensed their presence in my life on special occasions. Without question, Zechariah, the priest, sensed the presence of an angel in his life on one special occasion that is recorded in the Bible. Zechariah was just doing his job, and the divinely orchestrated encounter with the angel took place in the stillness of his workday when he least expected it. Not opening your mouth, 
not saying a word. I'm talking complete silence. God was for over 400 years. The muteness from the creator of the universe. The one who said that Earth is but a footstool to him was about to break his silence. shall name him John. A son? You will have great joy, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will turn many to the Lord their God. He will come with the power of Elijah. Elijah? He will prepare the people for the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. But, but I'm an old man. My wife... I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. And it was He who sent me to give you this good news. You will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born, for what he has spoke will surely be fulfilled. begins, the ritual becomes radiant, and the faithful become fathers. When God speaks, the heavens rise and the earth bows. Hope grows where hurt was rooted. Time becomes eternity, and he leads us to holy ground that was once hollow. Yes, my friends, God is just getting started. For Zechariah, he received the call of Christmas, and it would be a call to prepare. So the call of Christmas certainly comes from angelic messengers, 
sent directly by the Lord God Almighty who play a prominent role in the advent of the Messiah. And over these next few weeks, we'll examine four calls that come forth from the angels. We'll look at the Gospel of Matthew, the angel that came to Joseph. And the other three calls are recorded in the Gospel of Luke, Zechariah, Mary, and the shepherds. All four of these instances recounted an angelic call that would lead to an arrival of the Christ child of Jesus. The first call of Christmas is a call to prepare. Our story begins in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And as we move through this passage, we will stop along the way and we'll share some nuggets to give some context and some insight to help give some understanding of what is unfolding in the story. And I believe it will prepare us for the way to Christmas. So let's begin by wading through the first four verses together that is actually one really long sentence. Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's verses 1 through 4. Now, this is an awkwardly worded and a cumbersome sentence to start. I mean, it's the beginning of Luke's letter, which we consider to be a legitimate formal writing in the first century that quickly earned some respect. Now, give me a little latitude for, as I try to unpack this for you and why this is so important and what it means to our primary subject of exploring the angelic call that helps prepare us for Christmas. The structure of Luke's introduction is almost identical to another well-known writer in the first century. He was part of the Mediterranean world of that day. His name was Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright, Tom as some of us call him, has an interesting perspective on the opener of Luke's first letter, as well as the second letter known as the Book of Acts. And this was written to his friend named Theophilus. And we know very little about Theophilus, other than he is referred to as the most excellent some suggest this was a title of an important Roman official who was learning about Jesus. We're not quite sure. We don't know the specifics about who Theophilus was, other than Luke was writing a well-researched account of the story of Jesus for his friend, as well as any others who likely would read the story. Tom Wright says, Luke opens his gospel with a long formal sentence, like a huge stone entrance welcome you impressively to a large building. Here he is saying is something solid, something you can trust. Readers would know that they were beginning a serious, well-researched piece of work. This wasn't a fly-by-night or casual account. It would hold its head up in the world at large. Tom Wright basically is saying the educated masses would know Luther's writing was a serious study, that it would hold up due to his thorough research, and that his sources could be checked, and they could be checked to the letter. Now, Wright goes on to suggest that possibly the most important input to his letters from the accredited teachers within the local communities that were known as the official storytellers. This is what is incredibly important to this idea of the call of Christmas that comes particularly from the angels. So let me unpack it just a little bit further about the significance of the storytellers and their role in giving credibility to what Luke recorded in his official, well-researched and documented account of the life of Jesus. 
In biblical days, they did not have printed newspapers or books or media such as television or radio or the internet, social media, and all those to share stories. Instead, the people relied upon what we call official storytellers. It was primarily an oral communication kind of culture in that day. Whenever an event took place that got the people to talking, such as an earthquake or a battle or a visit by a royal person, the story quickly would spread around the village and settle into an agreed-upon form. While everyone would know the story, some had a gift of giving, being able to tell the story better and more accurately than others. Everyone in town knew who the recognized storyteller was and thus gave that person the final say to communicate it the best. Once the story was set, there was no modifications or licenses to elaborate or fudge on the details. Because the rest of the people knew the story so well, if a storyteller went off script, the crowd quickly would correct him. For a modern day example at this time of year, I mean, think about Twas the Night Before Christmas. It's not a new story, it's an old story. It's one that everybody knows, and we all agree about how it goes. The story rhymes and flows to the very end. Some may know the story so well, they do not even need to read it off the page. Imagine the official storyteller of the family beginning the story like this. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring except for a mouse. Right, everybody, immediately, people, if you've heard that story, you would stop and say, wait a minute, that's not how the story goes. You said not a creature was stirring except for a mouse. Actually, the story goes like this, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Come on, get it right, now start over. You see, in Luke's day, everybody in the crowd would start the story just as well as the official storyteller. If there are any details that were embellished, or out of sorts, the crowd and the storyteller would have told Luke the accounts of the stories concerning Jesus' life. They would have corrected anything in his letter that was written down as an official account. So this is the reason that it's so important that as we continue reading through Luke's story of the arrival of the Christ child before we get to his birth, we encounter an angel in the story. And so within the first couple of paragraphs of the story, Luke brings an angel into the narrative. He does the same thing in his second letter to Theophilus in Acts. Both letters begin with the formal, long, and wordy intro that lets everybody know this is well-researched, incredible writing that has been fact-checked by official storytellers and eyewitnesses. And then, within the first scenes in both letters, Luke introduces us to angelic activity. Now, what's important for us to consider is that nobody blinked at the mention of an angel. In other words, angels were believed to be real, credible, and a part of historical accounts, and that the masses would have accepted these encounters as fact. There's no reason we should not do the same today. Within that context, then, let's keep moving through the story and get into the angel's call to prepare. Again, beginning here in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. This portion of the story introduces us to a faithful couple who were in ministry, who loved God, and who lived lives of integrity and honor before the Lord. These were the poster couple for what it looked like to be in a marriage that honored God and one another. 
However, there was one deep sadness that they shared in their hearts, and judgmental eyes from all over looked on their lives because they did not have any children. You see, in that day, not having children was viewed as a curse from God because of some sin in a person's life. But that was not the case. Their time to have children had not yet come, though they were past the traditional childbearing and child-rearing years. They had prayed their whole marriage for a child as all Jewish couples would have done. Every Jewish woman dreamed of having the blessing and honor not only of having a child, but also of possibly being chosen to carry and give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. This was a dream that was long gone for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And nevertheless, they continued to pray and live faithfully before God in their lives. And as a priest, Zechariah would invest 50 weeks of the year at his hometown teaching and serving in his local synagogue. However, two weeks of the year, he and all the other priests who were part of his division of Abijah would head to Jerusalem to serve within the temple area and perform various priestly duties. There were 24 different priestly divisions in the biblical days. Each division consisted of hundreds of priests to help with the various responsibilities that were needed both in the hometowns as well as in the temple in Jerusalem. Throughout the year, there was a rotation that allowed each of the 24 divisions of priests to serve two one-week terms that enabled a fair share of the workload in Jerusalem at the temple to be done with equitable sharing. During the time of service in Jerusalem, one of the most noble duties that occurred twice a day, in the morning and in the afternoon, was the burning of incense on the altar inside the holy place of the temple. The way such a responsibility was assigned was by a method known as casting of lots. Think of it as drawing names out of a hat to see who among the hundreds of entries might be selected for a special prize. So Zechariah was selected for a literal once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to preside over this holy priestly duty. Moses spoke about this in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 30. The burning of incense by the priest even tied back to the Ark of the Covenant and to sacrifices and how God would meet with his people in that day of their ancient ancestors of faith. You can learn more about that if you want in Exodus chapter 30 verses 1 through 10. Now, as Zechariah was chosen to experience the culmination of his life's training and his priesthood responsibility, Beginning with verse 11 and following unfold what happened on this unique day when the call of Christmas would come to Zechariah after the prayers that were prayed. Zechariah was about to encounter the angel and be given the call to prepare. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. Zachariah was so overcome in this angelic encounter, he likely took his breath away. His emotions raced from fear, I'm sure, to consternation as he tried to understand what the angel was calling him toward. How could he be part of receiving a call to prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah when he and his wife were so far past the season of being parents? At this point, the angel asserts himself and shares not only his name, Gabriel, but also a sign of his power that would limit Zachariah's speech until after John would be born. It's interesting, in Billy Graham's book, he goes on to write about the importance of Gabriel and his ministry with great insight. Billy says, Gabriel is primarily God's messenger of mercy and promise. He appears four times in the Bible, always bearing good news. Daniel chapter 8, verse 16, chapter 9, verse 21, Luke chapter 1, 9, and verse 26. We may question whether he blows a silver trumpet, since this idea arises from folk music and finds only direct support in scripture. But the announcements of Gabriel as unfolding the plans, purposes, and verdicts of God are of monumental importance. Billy goes on to write, Gabriel first appears in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1. He identifies himself to Zechariah, he announces the birth of John the Baptist, and he describes his life and ministry as the forerunner of Jesus. So in other words, the call of Christmas from Gabriel to Zechariah is a call to prepare the way, to prepare the way of the Messiah in his forthcoming arrival. The birth of John the Baptist dynamically was connected with the call of Christmas that embodied the good news of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. When Gabriel appeared to Zechariah to announce the good news that Elizabeth would, despite her age, give birth to a son, his words were immersed in the good news. Gabriel communicated the call to prepare as he predicted John's ministry which is recorded in verses 16 through 18. It goes on to say, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the call of Christmas to Zechariah was all about being prepared. It was about preparation. And now what's amazing is he can't speak goes on to say, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Maybe Zechariah was good at the game charades. Well, you can try this at home in the privacy of your room with nobody around to record you on their cell phones, possibly. Just try and communicate to those around you uh, to family and friends by waving your hands and arms around and share with them this idea that you met an angel while you're in the temple and making the incense offering. Uh, how crazy would that be? But now we see the call of Christmas has been received and the buzz around the temple surely made its way through the streets of Jerusalem and even beyond uh, as storytellers heard and retold the story of the angel who encountered Zechariah, the old priest. And now it was time to go home and begin the preparation for John's arrival. Again, Luke says, And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This call of Christmas couldn't have happened to a more deserving couple. In a quiet moment of his job, an angel appears during Zechariah's workday in the temple and speaks the message from God. These were ordinary people doing their ordinary jobs in their ordinary lives and being faithful to God and to one another through it all. Our friend Tom Wright 
The scholar notes, the story is about much more than Zechariah's joy of having a son at last or Elizabeth's exultation of being freed from the scorn of the mothers in the village. It's about the great fulfillment of God's promises and purposes. But the needs and the hopes and the fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in this larger story, precisely because of who Israel's God is. He's the God of lavish, self-giving love. When God acts on the large scale, he takes care of smaller humans' concerns as well. And so as we prepare our homes, and we prepared the church last night, and we prepare our communities and even our workplaces for Christmas, may we invest time also preparing our hearts for the season of Advent, for the coming of the King. We can trim out the tree, we can string the lights on the house, we can hang the wreaths, we can light the candles, we can cook the Christmas foods, we can even sing the Christmas carols and enjoy just being together in each other's company for the season, that this, all these need to be savored and enjoyed. But we also need to be preparing our hearts to encounter this Savior once again. To encounter Jesus as something that is meant to be life-changing, both for our neighbors and for us. As we continue our worship together, let me leave you with this question. How do you need to respond to this call to prepare during this Christmas season?